Welcome to Guilty as Charged, the law behind the crimes, a podcast all about criminal law and policy specific to Arizona. You are listening to Arizona Supreme Court Oral Argument brought to you by Guilty as Charged. This is our case CR 2202227 State versus Bassett. This is the time set for oral argument. I note that Justice Montgomery is recused in this matter, and we are joined by retired Justice Rebecca Birch. Justice Birch, thank you for serving with us today. Pleasure. Counsel, you ready? Please proceed. Good morning, Your Honors and Counsel. May it please the Court. Julie Doan, Deputy County Attorney representing the state in this matter. Joining me at council table is Eliza Ibarra, who is counsel for Amicus Curie, Arizona Attorney General's Office. I'd like to reserve seven minutes for rebuttal if possible. In this case, Mr. Bassett was sentenced to a natural life for Tapia's murder, not because Arizona law mandated such a sentence, but because the trial court determined that was the appropriate sentence. After considering all the evidence presented during his eight-day trial, the aggravation and Bassett's mitigation, so which was presented through the lens of, I'm sorry. It's the time of sentencing. You had, the judge had the choice between a natural life sentence and a sentence with the possibility of parole after 25 years or possibly release after 25 years. And it strikes me that the fundamental issue in this case is whether or not that was a real choice. And, of course, the argument the other side makes is that it wasn't a real choice because there wasn't parole available. And, of course, subsequently the Arizona legislature then made parole available. So how do we get past that? How, how, how did the trial judge have a real choice in this case? Well, and if I'm understanding your question correctly, you're asking, was Bassett's natural life sentence mandatory under yeah, Miller? That's right. And our answer to that is no. First of all, we'd like to point this court to its decision or its opinion in Valencia, where this court already expressly found those petitioners' natural life sentences were not mandatory. Although they amounted to life without the possibility of parole because parole had been eliminated, they were not mandatory under Miller. There's nothing's happened that should um, that would if, allow this court if, to revisit. If the Arizona legislature had not passed a statute that made parole subsequently available, would the sentence be constitutional under Miller? I don't think so. Okay. No, but that, uh, um, as the trial courts found in the Valencia case, which is noted in the Valencia uh, decision, the trial courts found that 13716 remedied or resolved any constitutional infirmities in Arizona's sentencing scheme. Well, why, why uh, did you answer the question that way? I'm, I'm curious. Why would it not be? Well, because... At, and I can compare this to the Shaparo case. In Shaparo, he raised an issue that his sentence was illegal because parole was not available. The biggest difference between this case and Shaparo is, well, first of all, Shaparo raised that when that claim or when that issue was ripe, because at the point in time he raised it, he was eligible for parole. Here. Not only is it not ripe, because none of these defendants, which it doesn't matter now anyway, because of 13716, um, 25 years hasn't passed, but at this point it would be moot because of 13716. What Bassett argues that uh, Miller, as modified, construed by Jones, um, has two requirements. There has to be a parole uh, option and there must be a, a mechanism 
that uh, where the trial court considers the um, the offender's youth. Um, do you do you agree that that's a that those are both required? I do not, and I think part of that comes from the Wagner decision from May of 2022 in the Court of Appeals in, um, earlier. And, which was decided before a respondent judge issued a ruling in this case, so that's why I think she didn't cite Wagner. But I would disagree because if you look at the uh, reasoning in Miller, their focus was on requiring the trial court to take into <clears throat> account how children are different before sentencing them. Miller defined mandatory a mandatory sentencing scheme at 489 by requiring that all children convicted of homicide receive lifetime incarceration without the possibility of parole, regardless of their age and age-related characteristics and the natures of their crime, the mandatory sentencing scheme before us violates the principle of proportionality and the Eighth Amendment. It repeated this reasoning throughout its opinion. Miller actually, in its majority, uses the word mandatory 42 times. At pages 470 and 474, it talks about the holding in Miller. At pages 476, it explains the mandatory penalty schemes at issue here prevent the sentencer from taking into account the youth's mitigating qualities. And this uh, similar statements are made at pages 477, 478, and 487. So I, by finding those two prongs that Wagner found, that doesn't take into account the reasoning underlying the Miller uh, holding, which was clearly applied here. The trial court clearly took into account Mr. Bassett's use and attendant characterizations. And Arizona law for decades required not only the court to consider age as mitigating factor under G5 and E1, but in addition to that, and I laid this out in response to the Juvenile Law Center brief, um, going back as far as 1982 when it cited Eddings versus Oklahoma, in addition to age, it said the court should consider um, other considerations that are part of the, the juvenile's youth. And Your Honor cited uh, Greenway in the concurrence in Valencia when Your Honor found that Miller, although Miller implied in footnote 13 that Arizona was... Uh, had a mandatory sentencing scheme. Our law, law shows that it wasn't. And, and this case specifically demonstrates that it was not. We would argue that footnote 13 in Miller is actually dicta. And the other problem with it is it doesn't account for 13.716 that was passed right. in 2014. Does it show that it wasn't mandatory, or does it show that we've had this Miller-compliant uh, process all along? I think it shows both. Um, it wasn't mandatory in the sense that Miller was concerned with, which was, it said, you know, mandatory sentences, life without the possibility of parole sentences, violate the Eighth Amendment because it precludes consideration of a juvenile's youth and attendant characteristics. Arizona's never done that. So that was the problem we had from the beginning with Valencia, is it wasn't mandatory but, and I went back and watched the argument um, in Valencia. It was very enlightening. <laughs> and Justice Palander made a comment at the beginning and corrected himself, but he said, we're stuck with Miller and Montgomery now. And so we have to apply them. And then he said, we're bound by them. 
That is how the state felt after Valencia. We were stuck with Valencia, which was, that decision was understandable after what happened, um, what Montgomery talked about, and then Tatum, which was decided the day before the oral argument in Valencia, and that was Justice Bale's first question, was how does Tatum versus Arizona affect our decision in Valencia? And I think you looked at it as it affected a lot because you cited it in your opinion in Valencia. But what Justice Sotomayor said in her concurrence, which is what you cited in Valencia in Tatum versus Arizona, that the Eighth Amendment requires more and that Montgomery stood for more than what Miller held and that there's a very meaningful task for lower courts to carry out on remand is wrong. Jones says that's wrong. <coughs> Jones does, and Jones talked about you don't have to make these particular findings, and that part of Valencia might might be certainly gone. But Valencia also talked about that effectively the there was no choice but to impose a mandatory sentence because, at least at the time before the statute, it was considered mandatory. So here they felt the sentencing time fell into that with they're calling in the briefs, I guess, the, the Miller gap. And so when the judge actually imposed the sentence, it seemed as if he, I think it was a he, uh, had uh, no choice but to impose a mandatory sentence or effectively a mandatory sentence per Valencia. Uh, does that, even though later the statute came back and changed that, but does it matter or do we look at things from the perspective of the, the time in which the sentence was imposed? Well, the problem with that hypothetical is all the courts during this time, I shouldn't say all, but I have yet to find one that wasn't, were operating with the belief that a release option was available. <coughs> and in most of the cases, with the belief that parole was available. So the courts, so your argument or your question that talks about how, um, you know, that it wasn't actually available, that wasn't the belief that the judges were operating under. Does it matter what the judge believed as opposed to what the law actually was? Well, it does as far as when you're looking at if the judge... Clearly, Judge Hauser thought there was a difference because he sentenced him to both. Well, and it, it shows that he was exercising actual discretion. So I, I have yet to come across a case... Um, and the defense hasn't cited any, where a judge says, well, I'm going to sentence you, or I have to sentence you to natural life, because really that's the only option available, because parole isn't available. None of the judges believe that. But I think even if you just look at it without using the term parole and release, it's the, sentence didn't, the, the sentencing statute didn't change. The sentencing statute was the same. It was just the elimination of parole in Title 41. So the judge's choices under the sentencing statute didn't change. It was the implementation, which would be made later under Title 41, that was affected. So it didn't affect the imposition of the sentence. It only would affect the implementation of parole or carrying out that sentence later on. Is that inconsistent with the with the case law that developed on, on Simmons issues, which said that Arizona's scheme saying the possibility of release, well, that's not good enough because there's no parole. So you still have to instruct that Arizona will not allow for release, at least in death cases. So it's, it struck me when you said that, it's like, well, yes, that is a distinction, but that's when the U.S. Supreme Court has said, at least in the Simmons context, was was irrelevant. Well, and I were to ask it a different way, if the trial just didn't think there was practical difference, just like a jury would in Simmons, 
and said, all he's got is executive clemency, and that's never going to happen. So it doesn't matter which of these two I sentence him to. Does that make a difference? I think it would. Again, it's the, the judge's belief and whether or not there was an exercise of discretion. Um, but again, because the sentencing statute didn't change, I, I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. The sentencing statute didn't change, so this, the judge was following along with the sentencing statute. And he didn't have authority to impose parole at that point. He still doesn't. The statute still says with the possibility of release. It's Title 41 that decides what type of release. And it was understandable that judges um, in, in, at the time around when Bassett was sentenced believed that parole was available because the term was used in the statute. Um, you know, when it talks about a natural life, it says a natural life, you're not eligible for commutation, parole, work, furlough. Um, but then it talks about if you're sentenced to life, the defendant should not be released on any basis. So you're saying release, but then right in the sentence before that, you're talking about the different types of release. So it, it was completely understandable that the judges were operating under this belief that parole was available. Does, um, does Miller, um, Miller, do Miller and Jones, do they require any sort of quantum of evidence or nature of evidence? Uh, Bassett points out that most of the um, most of what was put forward here in the context of the uh, uh, of the offender's youth uh, was argument rather than evidence. Um, is that sufficient? Yes, it is, Your Honor. The and Jones makes clear discretionary sentencing is both constitutionally necessary and uh, constitutionally sufficient. It doesn't. There's no factors requiring. Jones also makes clear um, that a constitutionally uh, a constitutional sentencing doesn't require uh, the court to find the dependent was permanently incorrigible, to make specific findings, to provide an on-the-record sentencing explanation, um, nor is the sentencer required to use magic words or provide a checklist of its findings. There's not a, a certain evidence that has to be presented. In fact, I think that would be um, not in the best interest of the defendant if there was a checklist and said, well, you know, this kind of evidence has to be presented, this expert, you know, testimony has to be presented. What if it's not favorable to the defendant, but then a defense counsel still has to present it? So, no, it, none of those things. The sentencer, um, there's no particular evidence that has to be presented as long as the mitigation is presented. So Bassett's not entitled to a hearing because his sentencer didn't find that his crimes reflected irreparable corruption rather than um, transient immaturity, nor is he entitled to a hearing because his sentencer believes that the court didn't give the required weight required by Miller. There's no weight required by Miller. Um, nor is he entitled to a hearing because he believes the sentencer didn't appropriately consider or adequately consider his age um, and attendant characteristics. He's not entitled to a hearing because a psychological evaluation was not conducted of Bassett. Um, the evidence that he says wasn't presented, that should have been presented, that's more of an ineffective assistance of counsel claim. Mm -hmm. That is not a claim under Miller and Montgomery. I'm going to go um, back a, a few minutes in the argument uh, when the, the Chief Justice had, was asking you about the um, unavailability of parole as a matter of law. You you cited Jessup in your briefing, and I was expecting to hear that case come up um, in, in your answer. What what weight can, should we afford Jessup in addressing that issue? Well, and the, the important thing from Jessup, 
return to that language. Make sure I get that language right. Um, one of the things that Jessup noted was um, how the judge's exercise of discretion, um, how would it have looked any different if there was a different form of release? Bassett's never explained how his sentencing would have looked any different if it had said parole or parole was available. So it, that's why we cited Jessup, you know, because there's nothing in the record that reflects that the, uh, or suggests that the precise form of potential release at issue had any effect on the sentencing judge's exercise of discretion. That is clearly demonstrated in this case. So. And on the subject of Jessup, there's, there's an attempt to distinguish Jessup, I think, by language in the opinion about how the sentencing judge gave thoughtful consideration and gave the sentencing judge's extensive deliberations here. Um, there was some, some argument in the briefing about distinguishing Jessup on that basis. What is your, your response to that point? Again, there's nothing in Miller that requires a certain amount of consideration or a certain type of consideration or a particular type of evidence that has to be presented. Um, it just requires a certain process, which this court confirmed in the Sotofong opinion, the, the uh, court take into consideration or take into account uh, juveniles' youth and attendant characteristics. That's all that's required. They don't have to consider it a certain way. So it circles back to the requirements yeah. set forth in Miller. Yeah, unless the record affirmatively establishes otherwise <laughs> that the court didn't consider it, they're presumed to have considered it, and that language comes from Jones. Is, isn't, isn't the court's finding uh, as, as, the, as a primary reason for imposing a natural life sentence uh, for count one, that it's needed to protect the public because releasing the defendant um, would would endanger the public. Isn't isn't the logic inherent in that holding that there is in essence a permanent incorrigibility finding? I believe in this case specifically, yes. His consideration for Francis Tapia's murder, which he definitely you know looked at the two murders differently based on the circumstances. He said you know. The defendant, um, I, I don't know if he said reflected or it looked like he had a hardened heart, you know, with with respect to Francis Toppy's murder. And he, yeah, was concerned about the public safety. Well, and, the, and the trial court reaches that conclusion after considering the youthful characteristics. Yes. Right? Yeah. yeah, so in this case, I think you could even find irreparable corruption from the trial judge's findings or considerations and what his sentencing explanation was. But that is not required, again, because Jones doesn't require a sentencing explanation. I just clarify one, one last point. I realize we're lower than seven minutes. It's the state's position that there may be cases in which a judge considered himself or herself bound that would require resentencing. Uh, there, there may be if the court, if the if the trial judge felt itself bound uh, and did not consider, as a result of that, did not consider youthful characteristics. Well, I don't think that they can do that under a Miller Montgomery Rule thirty two point one claim. So, okay, that's a different that's a different uh, a different question or a procedural question, but substantively, you don't. I have a problem with that, right? That assertion. I, I just don't see how it could be raised. So, all right. And I'd like to save the rest of my time for a little. <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> May it please the court. Good morning. 
My name is Amy Bain, and I represent Lonnie Bassett. Also present this morning is Mr. Kevin Head of the Maricopa County Public Defender's Office and an author of an amicus curiae brief. I'm anticipating uh, saving approximately eight minutes or more of time for Mr. Head for oral argument this morning. Lonnie Bassett is entitled to an evidentiary hearing on his petition for post-conviction relief. Jones did not alter or alleviate that right. Miller and Montgomery, cases which are Supreme Court cases that have not been overruled, cases courts are bound to follow, together bar mandatory life without parole sentences on juvenile homicide offenders whose crimes reflect transient immaturity. And Bassett is entitled under the Eighth Amendment and Valencia to an evidentiary hearing to establish that his crime was in fact the result of transient immaturity, the sentence unconstitutional. Jones did not implicitly overrule Valencia, as the state asserts, and respondent judge did not abuse her discretion. So if there's a hearing and it gets sent back to the trial judge, and at the end of the hearing the trial judge says, in fact, it was mandatory, um, what's, what's the remedy? Um, to, to address that in respect to the respondent judge's ruling where she said it was a mandatory natural life sentencing scheme, in this case, this court could reject that portion of her decision and simply reiterate the correct legal standard. No, assuming at the end of the day she's right, and it's a mandate, she finds, we find that it gets to go back for an evidentiary hearing. She finds it's a mandatory sentencing scheme that goes up on appeal, and we agree with that. What's the remedy? The remedy would be that Mr. Bassett should be entitled to his evidentiary hearing under Valencia. Yeah, but, but, but what happens at the end of the day if he gets the evidentiary hearing and, and, and it's subsequently determined that, in fact, it was a mandatory sentencing scheme um, and that the trial judge didn't have discretion? Does he, do we just send him home? Is that the... No, in that case, he's entitled to a resentencing where youth and its attendant circumstances or characteristics should be given consideration. Yeah, but, but either one, one of two things has got to be true. I mean, one prong of the statute says natural life without the possibility of parole, and we know that, in, that, that unless the trial judge does that, considers that, considers age, and there's an alternative for the trial judge that he has to be sentenced to natural life. He has to be sentenced to life with the possibility of release. But your assertion, as I understand it, is at the time of the sentencing, there was no possibility of parole, and therefore there's no statutory way to sentence him to a to a, a sentence that, 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 that has the possibility of parole. So, so is there a remedy at all? Yes, there is. When Bassett was sentenced in 2006, parole had been abolished for nearly 12 years. It wasn't until eight years later that the legislature enacted stat the statute, Arizona Revised Statute 13716, which reinstated parole. But we have to look to the law that was in effect at the time Bassett was sentenced. At that time, because courts have concluded that uh, commutation through executive clemency was not a constitutionally adequate substitute for parole, at that time the discretioner lacked the, dissent, the discretion to impose a parole-eligible sentence. It was illegal in violation of state law. Uh, because it was illegal but the state did not appeal, it, was it, was, it stands and was deemed enforceable However, that was a paradoxical impossibility because parole hadn't been reinstated until eight years later. So looking at the law that was in effect at that time, the sentencing was, quote-unquote, mandatory. 
Subsequent legislation, well, it acts as a prospective remedy. It can't retroactively alter the substantive vested rights of which parole eligibility on sentencing is one. So the subsequent legislation cures that effect, allowing a sentencing court, after Mr. Bassett uh, proves at the evidentiary hearing, he, uh, the crime so, was... So your assertion would be it doesn't cure it for the original sentencing, but it would cure it with regard to any resentencing? It could cure, yes, because of the subsequent legislation. However, at that time, the judge... The judge's mistaken belief that it could impose a law in violation of, or it could impose a sentence in violation of state law, did not mean the sentence was compliant. Now, when Judge Cohen took that up in 2013, he took the position that the claim really wasn't ripe and that 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 issue didn't come to didn't come up until Bassett was actually eligible for parole. Why is that wrong? Well, in 2013, the 2013 petition, by the time briefing and oral arguments had occurred, Arizona Revised Statute 13716 was making its way through the legislature and looked like it was about to become enacted as law. So he said that was a fixer for the residual Miller issues. And Judge Cohen actually set upon enactment um, a ruling that the that Bassett should be entitled to a parole eligibility hearing date. So in that case, the judge found that the enactment of the statute cured count two, the sentence of life without parole. Um, in this case, Bassett asserts that his sentence was imposed under a scheme in which the judge lacked the discretion to impose a parole-eligible offense. And this court has already found defendants similarly situated to Bassett entitled to relief under Miller in those circumstances. What, what, could you address preclusion for, for a moment? I, I understood that, and procedurally this is a very odd case, at least yes. for me, uh, but the, the 2013 PCR proceedings uh, seem to relate more to count two, and as you said, the statute came in and, and, and such. But even the ruling about whether it's mandatory or not, by saying by ruling that count two, the, the sentence, was not mandatory. Does that because it's kind of because he had a choice between two sentences uh, originally? Does that necessarily preclude you from arguing to making your argument now on whether he truly had a choice? Well, mandatory? in that case, the judge limited his post-conviction relief specifically to count two, and no, it shouldn't. We know with the subsequent um, case law that. Those that this court has already determined that type of sentence to be a type of sentence that Mr. Bassett is entitled to relief. Um, in Valencia, this court has said that although Arizona laws were not technically mandatory, they still prevented the sentencer from exercising discretion to impose a parole eligible sentence and granted relief. Bassett's case is similar to that in that he has not been adjudicated or post-conviction relief has not been adjudicated as to count one, the life without parole sentence. Accordingly, the respondent judge did not err when she concluded that he was entitled to relief under Valencia. And contrary to the state's assertion, Jones did not overrule this court's um, decision in Valencia. Rather, Jones was a procedural narrow issue that addressed juvenile homicide sentencing while leaving untouched the substantive principles of Miller and Montgomery. 
In fact, Justice Kavanaugh, writing for the majority, stated that Jones did not overrule Miller and Montgomery. Rather, it follows sort with the rulings of Montgomery, where it said that although it's not imposing formal fact-finding requirements upon a sentencing judge, states are not free to impose sentences of life without parole on juvenile offenders where their crime reflects transient immaturity. Valencia is based in the rulings of Miller and Montgomery, well-founded in the rulings of Miller and Montgomery, and a narrow interpretation. It's not overruled, as uh, the state asserts in, in uh, Jones. Rather, Valencia is tenable with the decision of Jones and not inconsistent. Arizona does not require a sentencing judge to make a finding of fact, a specific finding of fact, a finding of permanent incorrigibility, or undergo any sort of formal fact-finding procedure. Rather, Valencia remains good law. For this court to find that Jones overruled Valencia denying Mr. Bassett the right to an evidentiary hearing, it must do what Justice Kavanaugh and what the Supreme Court declined to do is implicitly or explicitly overrule Miller and Montgomery. Rather, Valencia remains good law and should not be or should be affirmed as Valencia ensures that Arizona complies with the Eighth Amendment, Miller and Montgomery, and the post-conviction procedural rights associated with both with Rule 32 proceedings. Um, the Court of Appeals has recently discussed the same issues that the state brings up in State versus Wagoner. And while this court is certainly not bound by precedence of the Court of Appeals, it should affirm it as good law, as the Court of Appeals decision is based upon the rationale, ruling, and conclusions of this law in Valencia, or pardon me, this court in Valencia. And as the Court of Appeals found, just like respondent judge found, Jones didn't implicitly overrule uh, Valencia. It was tenable with it. The Court of Appeals also found, as respondent judge found, that Jones did not implicitly overrule the application of Miller and Montgomery to those defendants who are sentenced under a scheme that does not allow for parole. What, what shows that um, the judge here didn't consider the defendant's youth and whether it was just transient incorrigibility. He, he made some statements about considering his youth. And as Justice Lopez has pointed out, he did seem to, could he implicitly have found that it wasn't a matter of transient incorrigibility by imposing the natural life sentence without possibility of release on one but not the other? Well, as Mil Montgomery has made very clear, even if a court considers age, before sentencing that child to life without parole, it still violates the Constitution, the Eighth Amendment, to impose such a sentence on a child whose crime reflects transient immaturity. In this case, the court could not have given sufficient constitutional consideration to Miller and Montgomery, and it couldn't have because Miller and Montgomery had yet to be decided to give that court the guidance from their precedents, and not only to give the court or the sentencer guidance, but to give the attorney guidance as to what evidence needed to be presented to be a Miller constitutionally compliant sentence. And at this point, I know Mr. Head would like to extrapolate on your honors question, so hopefully I've answered it succinctly and he'll go into it with more depth. Thank you all this morning. 
Thank you. Uh, Kevin Head on behalf of the Maricopa County Public Defender's Office. And there's been a lot of discussion about two distinct concepts, the procedural requirements that Miller and Montgomery set forth and its substantive analysis. And uh, during Ms. Doan's presentation, there wasn't much discussion of the substantive, substantive ruling that Montgomery recognized that Miller held. And this court, even when it disagrees with the United States Supreme Court precedent, is still bound by it. And so it needs to affirm the ruling below for two simple reasons. Uh, Miller and Montgomery established a substantive constitutional rule of law that was retroactive, and that rule of law is that the Eighth Amendment forbids life without parole for juveniles where the crime reflects transient immaturity. And the second is Jones, by declining to add procedural protections, didn't change this substantive rule of law. And to your question, Justice Timmer, uh, certainly there are some facts that the judge found that, that could come close to such a determination, but as uh, Ms. Bain noted, you can't expect the sentencing judge to predict the future as to what the constitutional standard would be. When so under that, then, does that mean from what Ms. Bain said and what you're about to say, I think, that in every case in which a mandatory sentence was uh, imposed or the, it doesn't appear from the record that the court considered transient incorrigibility, it has to be, you have to have a resentencing because the courts could not have forecast Miller and Montgomery. Well, this, that's not the, the path this court took in Valencia, right? So certainly, every, it seems like every other jurisdiction following Miller and Montgomery required resentencing. But instead, this court required proof of unconstitutionality. In order to be entitled to resentencing, you had to establish the crime reflected transient immaturity. And that's the minimum this court could have done. It could have followed suit with what other jurisdictions did and require resentencing. Had the court done that, the procedural posture of this case may give question as to whether resentencing is the sufficient or adequate remedy here because of this illegal sentence in count two. But the court didn't do that, right, in Valencia. What it did is required uh, the, the petitioners to carry a burden of transient immaturity. And in this case, the judge at sentencing recognized the Eighth Amendment ceiling was set by Roper, right? So he said, the one thing that's not available to me at, at, for your sentence, Mr. Bassett, is death. That's not available. But there is no presumption one way or the other as to whether or not I impose a life without parole sentence, a natural life sentence, or I impose uh, a, a parole eligible sentence under the mistaken belief parole is available. But when he said that, he wasn't uh, applying the, the so he, it was a, a recognition that that constitutional limitation was death. Since then, the law changed, right? The, the, the constitutional limitation for a life without parole sentence is uh, where the, it's, it's forbidden where the crime reflects transient immaturity. Now, in Soto Fong, this court kind of uh, invited some confusion, right? And dicta, uh, Justice Lopez's decision, and see you've got the Justice Bean sign in front of you. Um, a bit confusing. Nope. But, uh, <laughs> we do have to throw counsel off. <laughs> Just trying to throw me off, <laughs> right? Uh, right? It's, so it's you, merely you aspirational. Um, you, you pointed to Justice Scalia's dissent in Montgomery, and, and you characterized that as clarifying what Montgomery did. And that's not what dissents do. Dissents don't clarify what majority opinions do. They dispute them, right? And Justice Scalia himself noted what the majority did in Montgomery in the preceding sentence from the one that this court quoted in paragraphs 21 and 22, when Justice Scalia said... Um, the majority asserts that Miller rendered life without parole an unconstitutional penalty for a class of defendants because of their status. That is, juveniles offenders whose crimes reflect transient immaturity. So even Justice Scalia, in his dissent, recognized what the majority did. He just disagreed with it. But that and, yet, and yet Jones basically 
embraces what, what Scalia said there, almost, almost verbatim. And when we look at Jones, um, which is the more recent pronouncement of the law, I, I recognize that the court did, did not officially overturn Montgomery and, and uh, Miller, uh, but it made quite clear two things in my view. First of all, that no specific findings, particular types of findings, had to be made. So where the transient immaturity still remains is, is a mystery to me. And second of all, that the reason for uh, the mandate for uh, uh, finding a mandatory sentence untenable is that it precluded a court from considering youth and attendant characteristics, which was required by our, our law. So I'm not, not sure. I, you know, I, I understand having voted with the majority very frustratedly in, uh, in Valencia, uh, why uh, Miller and Montgomery would, would mandate that, but it sure seems to me that Jones frees this court to say that our, our system is, is constitutionally compliant. I'd be honored to try to help you understand. <laughs> Please Paul. do. Uh, so uh, the, the first point is uh, Jones didn't challenge the as-applied, he didn't make an as-applied challenge to a sentence, right? He claimed that an order before, and Jones was sentenced post-Montgomery, where the sentencing judge knew what the limits were. The sentencing judge knew that she, he or she could not impose life without parole where the crime reflects transient immaturity. But uh, what, jo what Jones has argued was that before the judge could impose that sentence, there needed to be explicit additional findings. Valencia predictively aligned with Jones. And, and, and the, the distinction is that Valencia is a post-conviction case establishing a collateral means to attack a, a unconstitutional sentence, right? And so uh, when in Jones, Justice Kavanaugh notes twice that they're not disturbing this substantive ruling. And we keep getting to confusing this procedural component with the substantive component. I'd like to get to the procedural in a minute. But at footnote two, uh, the uh, Jones opinion notes the key paragraph from Montgomery, and the court and the statement <coughs> assert just because it's in a footnote that it's no longer relevant. But as you noted, Justice Pollack, Montgomery hasn't been expressly overruled, so you're still bound by it, right? And the way that the way that cases work is you don't make uh, you don't issue opinions on issues that aren't presented. Jones is a procedural case and asking for additional procedural protections that were already pre-rejected in Montgomery, as this court noted in Valencia. And so, Justice Timmer, when you're saying certainly the uh, fact-finding requirements in Valencia must go out the window, no, they can't, because, uh, because it's a substantive rule of law. And that's what made Miller retroactive. That's what Scalia disagreed with, but it still persists. And, uh, and footnote <coughs> two, Louisiana argued that uh, just because there aren't these procedural protections that require a finding of uh, permanent incorrigibility, that the Eighth Amendment uh, doesn't prohibit life without parole for transient maturity. And had Jones sought to cut the substantive basis of Montgomery from its analysis, one, it would have explicitly said so. Two, it wouldn't have included the following portion in this footnote, which it characterizes as the key paragraph from Montgomery. That Miller did not impose formal fact-finding requirements does not leave states free to sentence a child who, whose crime reflects transient immaturity to life without parole. To the contrary, that uh, Miller established that this punishment is disproportionate under the Eighth Amendment. That's what this court recognized in Valencia. Jones carefully followed both, and it didn't, it didn't alter the substantive rule because it wasn't addressed. 
Had Jones raised the claim that he was sentenced to life without parole because the crime reflected transient immaturity, then perhaps the court would have the occasion to gut that for Montgomery. Uh, this court's bound by Montgomery. It's bound by Jones, uh, and it's re- it was required to uh, give him uh, a means to challenge his substantive new rule of law. Substantive new rules of law remove from the state the ability to impose a certain sentence. That's what Montgomery recognized. If Jones did what the state is claiming it did, it wouldn't have been Montgomery wouldn't be retroactive. It wouldn't have made Miller retroactive. Uh, the, the procedural arguments are red herrings. This court's already rejected them all in, in Miller. Uh, uh, each one of the arguments, uh, nothing, Jones doesn't give a new occasion to rewrite the standard. Miller prohibits mandatory life without parole, not mandatory natural life. This court recognized that in Valencia um, at paragraph, I think, 15 or fa- paragraph uh, 16. Thank so, you. Thank you, Mr. Hale. Thank you. <laughs> I would start off by saying that I agree with Mr. Head and that rarely happens. This court is bound by Jones. Jones said discretionary sentencing is constitutionally sufficient. Regarding the argument that Jones um, you know, said it was not overruling Miller and Montgomery, yeah, it said that, but it was reading Miller and Montgomery for far narrower propositions um, than had than they had been read for before. I would direct this court's attention to the United States versus Brione's case, which we cited in our briefing. In that case, I actually went back and watched the argument, and the defense in that case advanced the exact same argument that the defense is advancing here based on footnote two in Jones, saying that uh, Brione's argues that Jones did not purport to change what he characterizes as Miller and Montgomery's central inquiry. In uh, Brione's, though, the court found that that was Miller's dictum, um, and they rejected uh, Brione's urge to say that Jones left in place Montgomery's dictum. They call it dictum. Um, As far as being able to raise that Valencia is different because it is a uh, PCR proceeding, a Rule 32, under Bassett's reasoning, then, a defendant could always collaterally attack their sentence for a reason that isn't even required at the original sentencing. Thank you, Ms. Stone. Thank you, Your Honor. Counsel, thank you for the arguments and the supplemental briefing. This matter, the case is now at issue. An opinion will issue in due course, and the court is adjourned for the day. Thanks for joining us today on Guilty as Charged. Please subscribe to our podcast to get more great discussion about law and crimes specific to Arizona, and also get access to Arizona Supreme Court audio. You can find Jake on Twitter at JacobBrownAZ. 